We're in the book of Hebrews talking about better than. Uh, so again, if you want to prep yourself, you can open up to Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, but when uh, America was discovered back in the time of exploration and colonization began to happen, uh, it really was a transition from old European lifestyle uh, in the New World, right? The, the old European lifestyle was a, a set uh, social class of the upper and lower class, an aristocracy that was, uh, you know, the haves and the have-nots, those that simply by name alone uh, were entitled to a series of privilege and wealth uh, that many did not have access to. And so as the, the colonies were discovered, we now had a whole new world that was full of potential, a world of vision that people were ready to embark on uh, and, and journey forward through. And, and for many, it was the lower class that really embraced this idea that this was a transition to break away from the old system and the old world. Uh, and so America would be built by the hands of these men and women, uh, land that would uh, be settled by early pioneers and, and roughing it out. And as time progressed, they moved beyond the Appalachian Mountains, beyond the Mississippi River, uh, into a land that was much more hostile, uh, much more barren and desolate. Uh, and it really took the strength of many great men and women to blaze that trail. And so we, we had the Oregon Trail that was then established that set us across the country. Uh, we tamed the Wild West, if we will, and then eventually that vision of manifest destiny, that the, the continental United States would be given uh, to, to the Americans by God, and they would begin to civilize this entire continent. Uh, and so because of all of this, there is a piece of our culture that really has become very individualistic, right? We, we have a, a lone ranger mentality. We have a mindset that says, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. We have a mindset that says, hard work, grit, determination can build anything and can conquer anything in this world. Uh, and so that has progressed to today that now we have the YouTube handyman and the DYI project masters. Uh, and so it's not surprising that when there's something wrong, especially with our houses, we oftentimes don't want to call someone, right? We, we don't want to ask for help, right? There was a long time where men refused to stop and ask for directions because they could figure it out on their own, right? Uh, and so we've become this type of culture. And, and as we go through the book of Hebrews today, it may seem a little bit foreign and strange to us as we talk about this idea of a high priest. Because for us, being dependent on someone is not kind of our, our norm. It's not part of our culture, right? We depend on ourselves to do everything. But for the ancient Israelites, they always had someone guiding them and someone leading them, right? They, they had Abraham and there was Moses and there was David and there was Solomon and Joshua and we had the apostles, right? And, and there was always somebody that was there to guide them. And a big part of that was the priesthood that existed. And as I said, the great high priest that would exist. And so 
As we're going through, I want us to kind of like hang in there for kind of like, this doesn't seem to relate to me at all, because I think it does, and we'll get to that at the end. Uh, but again, it may seem a little culturally different. But again, the author of Hebrews has been talking about all of these things uh, in terms of intercessors and pieces of their culture that they have placed above Christ and Christ is now, the author is trying to explain to them that again, no, 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 Christ is better than all of that. And that is where our hope needs to be found in Christ alone. All right, so let's begin here in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we, that we possess. So he's talking about, again, in, in light of everything else that I've talked about, I'm, I'm, I'm transitioning to the next idea now. And he says there's this great high priest, okay, and this great high priest who has gone into heaven, and he says, this is Jesus, okay, and this is what we need to hold on to, and this is what we need to cling to uh, as we go through. And really for the next three chapters now, He's really going to take this idea of the high priest because it's such an embedded part of their culture that he's like, I'm going to take three chapters to really wrestle with this idea, to really have you understand that Christ is better than the high priest. Now, in order to understand this, we certainly have to go back into the culture and say, okay, who is the high priest? Where does this come from? What is it that they understand? And then how does the author connect him to who the high priest is? So we have to go all the way back to Exodus 28. Uh, and in Exodus 28, uh, this is where, again, Christ has called Moses up to the mountain. He's giving him the commands, and he's basically setting forward how it's going to look for his people of Israel. And he says here, he says, Have Aaron your brother... Brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. Tell all of the skilled workers to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron, for his consecration, so he may serve me as a priest." These are the garments they are to make, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a woven tonic, a turban, and a sash. They are to make sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons, so they may serve me as priests. Have them use gold and blue, purple and scarlet yarn, and fine linen. Okay, so he establishes right here, we are going to have a priesthood, and the priesthood is going to come through this line of Aaron, through the tribe of Levi. They're going to be set apart to do the specific things that I have asked. Now, the Levites and priests right, are two sets of people, so they all come from the tribe of Levi. But a Levite was somebody who was responsible for taking care of the artifacts of the temple. So when it was time to, to move you know, the, the tent, the tabernacle, you know, they would be the ones that would get it together and they'd wrap it up and they'd be the ones to carry it. They'd be the ones that would set it up again. So that was the role of a Levite. Now a priest who was a Levite as well, but he specifically descended from the line of Aaron, he had a more important job and that job was responsible for making the actual sacrifices in the temple. 
Okay, so the Levite did all of the, 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 the managerial stuff, but it was the priest who would go in and actually make that actual sacrifice before God. So, so that's a very prestigious position there. And the high priest was the most important priest out of all of them. Okay? So the high priest was a position that was typically passed hereditary. So it was usually given to the oldest son. So when the, oldest, uh, you know, when the high priest passes away, typically the oldest son would have taken over if he certainly met the characteristics uh, of what a high priest was and had the character as a man of God. He would then assume that role. And the high priest was essentially responsible for all of the other priests. Okay? That, you know, he's kind of like the big guy that was in charge. Um, and when there would be times where people would come and they, they weren't sure what to do, do we go and attack, do we not attack, do we, do we move over here, they would come to the high priest and they would seek out his wisdom. And he would go in, in time before God and meditate and pray. And there's some different thoughts about how did it happen. Uh, some people think that they might have had sticks or stones that he carried in a pouch that after some time in prayer, he would pull one out that either had like a yes or a no answer, true or false. Uh, some people thought that perhaps uh, some of these stones had letters that as he would pull them out, they would spell certain things or that even the garment as it reflected uh, it would reflect different letters to communicate what the answer is. Okay, so those are some different thoughts that some, some scholars have had. But the idea, though, is the, is the fact that you would come to the high priest and he would give an answer to the community from what God was communicating to him. Now, the most important part, though, was the Day of Atonement what is known as Yom Kippur. This was the holiest day of the year. This was the most sacred time of the year where they would gather together to basically come and present their sins before God and seek that forgiveness for him. And we see this actually in Leviticus 16. So let me read through this here. It said, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of his two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain uh, in front of the atonement cover in the ark or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred tunic, linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on a linen turban. These are the sacred garments, and so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats, present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of the meeting, and he is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as a scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. So in the, in the ten and eventually in the, in the tabernacle in the temple, there was a curtain, there was a veil that separated the Holy of Holies. And nobody was to enter into this place. And there it contained the Ark of the Covenant. 
And once a year, the high priest would go behind that curtain. And he would, before he did it, right, we saw all of that. He'd have to put on the sacred garments. He'd have to bathe himself to cleanse himself. And then he'd have to make a, a sacrifice for himself on his own sins. And then he would make that sacrifice would also be for his family. And then he could enter into the Holy of Holies. And then as he was part of the Holy of Holies, he would make a sacrifice. He would take a goat and he would sacrifice that and he would sprinkle that all over the altar. Right. Because, again, there had to be a cleansing of our sins by the blood of these animals. And then he would take his hands on and he essentially would be putting all of the sins of Israel on that goat and would send that goat away as if our sins had been dealt with. Okay, And so once a year, this is what would happen. And, and he would wear this tunic that had the names of Israel on there because he was representing all of the different tribes that existed. Okay, so that was the job of the high priest. And so now the author is going to say, okay, so we know that you understand the high priest. Now let's make these connections to who Christ is and why Christ is better than any of the high priests that ever walked before us. So the first thing is in that passage, you notice he uses the phrase, great high priest, right? He's done that before where he's talked about a great salvation. Again, referencing the idea that what we have is better than what we've had before. So first off, again, he says, look, high priest, day of atonement, went in, went into the Holy of Holies. But what does he say about Christ? He says, we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens. So what that means is that Christ has ascended into the heavenly realm. He is sitting right next to the Father, interceding on our behalves. And the reason why that's better is because, one, he's not going once a year. He is in a permanent position next to the Father. It is a 24-7, 365 days a year position where Christ is in the Holy of Holies, in the heavenly kingdom, interceding on our behalf, unlike the high priest who went in once a year. Okay, so he says already there is a greater connection that Christ has to the Heavenly Father than what the high priest has. Now let's read a little bit more. Verse 15. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are gone astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why we have to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. Okay, so first off, it talks about this idea that Christ is able to represent us, right? That's what the high priest did. He represented the people on, to, on their behalf to God. And so the first thing that he acknowledges, he says, look, we have a great high priest that understands exactly what you're going through. 
right? He, he uses that word. He's able to sympathize with our weakness. Now, we, we, we use these terms sympathy and empathy, right? They, they're, they're very similar, but there is a slight difference. When we talk about being sympathetic towards someone, it's this idea that I feel bad for you because something's wrong in your life, but I've never experienced myself. And so it's hard for me to relate with that. But when we talk about empathy, a lot of times empathy is, I know exactly what you're going through because I've experienced that. I've lived through the struggle. I've lived through the pain. I've lived through the hurt. And sympathy makes us feel bad for a person, but a lot of times it's a lot more superficial, right? We don't really get down into the heart of it. Empathy causes us to look at a situation and go, I really want to hear what's on your heart. I am deeply invested what happens with you. And so sympathy then, a lot of times, just tries to fix the problem, right? Because we're not so much concerned as much about you as to just getting the problem over with. But empathy says, I want to help you through the problem because I know how hard it is. And so because Christ lived our humanity he is able to sympathize and empathize in our weakness. He, he, he experienced what it meant to be tempted. He experienced what it meant to feel sadness. He experienced what it meant to go through pain and heartache. So, so if we look at Christ and go, well, you're a God. You have no idea what I'm going through. Christ can say, I know exactly what you're going through because I have lived a human life. You know, when I was, I was in college, I played one year of lacrosse. and It was a lot of fun, and I really enjoyed it. Um, we had an assistant coach, uh, coach, coach McNamara, and this guy was a workout machine. This was the kind of guy that would like be like, hey, what are you doing this weekend? He's like, you know what, I think I'm just going to sign up for a marathon. And he would go out and run it. And, and he would come to practice, and boy, would this guy run us ragged. Oh, I could, I, I was never a huge, I was a, I was a sprinter in track, but long distance, it, no. And he ran us ragged, and it was constant. Before practice, he had, he was a defensive coach, and I played defense. So before practice, he had us run it. You know, we'd make a mistake, he had us run it. At the end of practice, he's like, all right, guys, now it's time to run. And you were like, I cannot run anymore. But you know what the worst part was? Every time we ran, he ran with us. And he beat us every single time. So when we wanted to yell at Coach Mack for making us run, we couldn't because he was running with us. And then he would scold us and criticize us and, and, and make fun of us that he kept beating us all the time. But I'll tell you what was even worse was, my buddy ended up working for him in the summer, and you know what he found out? He found out that the amount that we ran was based on how bad his day was. <laughs> Man, I'll tell you. <laughs> That guy. But, but, but the point of that is, he knew exactly how hard it was to run because he was running those laps with us. He was running those sprites with us, just the way that Christ understands what we're going through. So he's able to represent us because he knows what we're going through. Now, not only that, 
But what did the passage say as well? It talked about how the idea that he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray. For anybody that's been in any position of leadership knows how frustrating it can be with those underneath you, right? They're just not doing what I want them to do. They just don't get it. They just don't understand. They show up late to work. They don't work hard. They do all of these things. And you can imagine what it was like for the high priests. Because if we know the history of the Israelites, it's not like God read them through the Red Sea and they were perfect, obedient children of God. No, God gets to a point where God basically says, because of your disobedience, I am going to send you into 70 years of captivity. That's how far you have wandered away. So you could imagine a high priest constantly being frustrated with his people, saying, you don't get it. Why are you worshiping these other gods? Why are you disobeying the commands of God? But how is Christ able to deal with us? With gentleness and love and care. That's why he can represent us. Because he, he, he deals with us in a way that, again, he wants us to deal with others, to love and care for others the way that he did ultimately dying on the cross for us. And so because he is able to represent us, he's able to go before God. It's kind of like in the Olympics, right? If you want to represent America, you have to be an American citizen. In order to be a high priest, to do the job of a high priest, to represent the people, you have to be those people. That, that's why the American colonists were so frustrated. Remember the phrase, uh, no taxation without representation? Well, the English were baffled by that. We don't understand what you mean. We're speaking on your behalf in Parliament. I don't get what you're so upset about. And the colonists said, no, we want somebody from the colonies who are living in the colonies, who knows what it's like to be in the colony, to have to deal with the taxes. That's who I want to represent me. And so Christ is, is able to do this representation on our behalf. And because he's able to represent us, he's able to perform the sacrifices of God. But see, here's the thing that's different. Remember what we just said? The priest had to go and make a sacrifice for his own sin. He, he had to put on the holy garments. He had to bathe himself. But see, Christ never had to do any of that. Because what are we told in verse 15? He did not sin. So when Christ went, not into the holy of holies, but when Christ entered into the heavenly kingdom, he didn't have to make a sacrifice. But matter of fact, Christ was able to be the sacrifice. That is something an earthly high priest could never do. So because of that, Christ is better as our representation to God as a high priest. Now we're going to read the last couple of passages here. And we're actually going to kind of flip to the other side of this representation. Verse 4. It says, No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God just as Aaron was. 
So so Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the times of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So as I said, he, he's now kind of flipping this, the, the script here. So first, the high priest was representing us. And now what he's getting at is why God accepts the representation of Christ on our behalf. Why is he willing to acknowledge who Christ is? It's kind of like how a defensive attorney represents the defendant and the judge is willing to recognize that authority. That's what God is doing here with Christ. So how is it that God accepts the representation of Christ? Well, first off, he was appointed by God himself. Remember what I said, the high priest was usually the next oldest, the next in line was the oldest son. And and what Christ is looking at here, uh, and he's saying, listen, you are my son. You You are physically coming through the line of God. So if there's any better genealogy, Christ is it. And then he quotes two passages, one out of Psalm 2 and one out of Psalm 110. Both of those are considered messianic psalms. That when people read those, they understood those psalms to be about the Messiah that was going to come and redeem them. The one that was going to save them from their oppression. And so the author is equating Christ as the Messiah. He says, remember this guy that you've been waiting for all of these years? This is the guy. If you still don't get it, go back to the Psalms and understand this is the one that the psalmist was speaking about. And he says that you are in the order of Melchizedek. That order simply means succession. Right? That that when Melchizedek, the high priest, died, Christ was the next one. And we'll talk more in the next couple of chapters of who exactly that guy was. But for right now, we just need to understand that Christ was the next in line. And what does he say? He is in the line forever. See, he's not a high priest that serves and then dies. He is a living high priest. He is the great high priest. And why also does this representation become so legitimate in the eyes of God? He says, because he was obedient. And he talks about how he offers up these prayers and petitions and loud cries and tears to the one who could save him. That's referring to when he was in the garden, knowing what was about to happen to him at the cross, that he was about to bear the wrath of humanity's sins. 
and Christ gets on his knees and he starts praying, Father, if you could take this cup, if there is some other way that I can save humanity by not having to endure what I'm going to go through, then please, God, take this and give it another way. And God turns to him and says, there is not because there needs to be a sacrifice and you are that sacrifice. And Christ says, then your will be done then I will go through with it if this is the way that you are calling us to save mankind. And so through that experience, he exemplified obedience. And he was the perfect lamb of God that could be sacrificed. And so to all who obey him, Again, that is the call of all of this. To those who obey him, to those who follow after Christ, to those who continue to remain faithful to him, you will be a child of God. Now, as I said, when I started, a lot of this might not resonate because historically, culturally, Many of us have never probably stood before the temple and have felt like we needed to make a sacrifice. None of us have probably ever gone and, and saw the high priest and you know, brought our, 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 our sins to him and did all of that. But we have to understand, though, there is an element that we often wrestle with. And like I said, we, we may not always be dependent upon somebody to do something for us. We, we often want to do it ourselves. But there is a lot of times in this world that we put people on a pedestal because of who we think they are, just like the Israelites did with the high priest. And we do it all the time, especially in the religious world. You know, in the Catholic Church, they're told to, to make their confessions before a priest. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that confession is an integral part of our discipleship for one another. But many of them understand that confession to a priest is a way to absolve their sins. That somehow speaking to this man will forgive them. And what we understand is that my confession to a religious leader is not going to save me. But what's going to save me is the blood of Christ. And ever since I started this journey as, as desiring to become a pastor and I got licensed years ago, the moment people started to understand that, in some regards, I know I was held up as the sacred cow, if you will. And I'll tell you, one of the easiest ways is whenever there's a party or a picnic, you know who gets to pray? <laughs> the pastor. Because if I pray that somehow my prayers are more sacred and righteous and will reach God where opposed to yours, which will not. Guys, let me, let, let me fill you in. Listen, I am happy to pray at any event. I would love to do that. Do not get me wrong. But I am a sinner just like you. So if you think that you can't pray because I'm in the room, you are sadly mistaken. Quite frankly, there probably should be times where you should be praying instead of me. Okay? But that's what we do. We elevate people. And, and let, me, let me give you some more here. Because we do this in our, in our social lives all the time. It's not just in the religious world. They're better looking than us. 
They have a nicer house than us. They're smarter than us. They have more money than us. Some that go a little bit deeper. You know, their, their kids aren't messed up like my kids. Their marriage isn't broken like my marriage. They don't have a floundering business as I wallow here in debt. Look at, look at all of the friends they have, and I have nobody. We compare ourselves all the time to people. And, and, and we make these perceptions about their lives that somehow their lives are better than ours and then we elevate them to a level of greatness and holiness that in some cases we think that they must be closer to God than I am. But what's the reality? The only comparison that we need to make is to Christ. The only person that needs to be elevated in our lives is Christ. Because when we compare ourselves to Christ, we see our fallen and sinful nature, do we not? When we compare ourselves to Christ, it exposes exactly who we are. People destined for the wrath of hell. But when we compare ourselves to Christ, we also find the beauty of who he is that saves us from all of that. If we go back to verse 16 there in chapter 4, what does it tell us to do? It says, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Guys, we have to stop idolizing these flawed human beings in our lives. We have to stop putting a dependence and a trust in people that will let us down. What we need to do is we need to go to the great high priest because it is only there that we find the throne of grace and mercy. It is only there that we can have confidence that our sins have been forgiven that our lives are being taken care of, that we have an eternity that awaits us, that we have a hope that when we die, that this is not the end, that whatever we toil and struggle through in this world, there is something better on the other side. We have the confidence that we have been forgiven for all of the things that we have done wrong, and instead of not getting what we deserve, we get what we shouldn't deserve. That is the beauty of the throne of God's grace. And that's what he says to us, guys. We come to that throne. We come to that great high priest each and every single day because each and every day we go, he is offering that one a time again after another, another 24-7, 365 days a year until you die and are taken home or until he comes back. So that is where we need to head, guys. That is the place of beauty. Because Christ is the only one that can offer that. Not a priest, not a pastor, not a religious guru, not your friend. Nobody but Christ 
can offer us the eternal grace and mercy that we need. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you um, that, again, you, you, you've taken a part of our understanding of a culture that we don't live and can make it relevant to ours. God, forgive us for the many times that we elevate someone beyond you. Lord, you, you talk about that in your commandments. You shall have no other God before you. So, Lord, let us worship you that way. Because, Lord, when we worship you that way, you are, you are not some sort of Greek or Roman God that's aloof, that's vindictive and trying to punish us. But instead, you are a God that loves and cares for us. Lord, you came down in human form to bear the consequences of our sins, to endure the pain and the humiliation of the cross, and you did so with perfect obedience. God, I thank you that you are in the heavens now, that you are alive, that you are not dead, but you are the high priest forever and always. And you are our high priest. Amen.